Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. Genesis 1, 26, God's word given to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. I'm going to take a couple of weeks here at the end of our summer, sadly. The end of of summer. Our students have already finished summer. In my mind, summer goes through Labor Day. Grew up in Minnesota. That was our summer vacation, Memorial Day to Labor Day. Not a day earlier or later, because we had to work in the cornfields all summer. So here at the end of our summer, we will take a couple of weeks to think about together some of these issues that are swirling around in our world, in our culture. Issues of sexuality, of identity, uh, even of gender. And what we're going to do tonight is lay some of the groundwork for that. So really what we'll do is we'll look at Genesis chapter 1, uh, lay those, that, uh, those foundational principles, lay that groundwork, and then next week probably unpack more of, more of the implications of all of these things as we consider them together and how important it is for us to be grounded in God's word on these issues today. Three ideas tonight. God created us. God created us in his image, and God created us male and female. When we talk about the Christian faith and the Christian worldview, in order to to understand how it is that our faith comes together, we begin here at the beginning, at the start. And uh, this isn't just going to be a, a synagogue sermon that is just looking at the Old Testament as it is and not bringing it to Christ, but we really see how all of these things bring us forward in pretty clear and remarkable ways to our Savior. So creation by God is, is a vital source for understanding what it means to be human. Creation by God is also a vital source for understanding why we need to look to Christ and look to him for salvation. So first then, God created human beings. Here in the first, uh, first chapter of Genesis, this is the sixth day of the creation account of chapter 1. And we see that God's act of creating human beings is, is different than all that has come before it. We've not yet encountered this phrase where God says, let us make And most theologians, conservative scholars, think that one of two things is going on here. The the first possibility is that when God says, let us make, in Genesis chapter 1, this is an intra-Trinitarian discussion. So this is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit uh, talking together and deciding together that they are going to create human beings. It's an act of the, the triune God that's 
different in quality from the rest, from all that has come before it. And uh, that would then come to bear on the question of how we define the, the image of God. Because what it does is it opens up that human beings are to be like God in the sense that they are relational. God does not exist as purely a singularity. He is one in essence, but he is three in persons. All three persons of the Godhead have been joined together in perfect fellowship and love from all eternity. And if that is how God is, then we learn about the image of God in saying that that is how human beings are supposed to be as well. Now that's true whether or not we think that's exactly what's going on here in Genesis 1. The other possibility of what's going on when God says, let us make, is that God is making a declaration in his divine counsel, in his heavenly counsel. In other words, he's acting as the king of all things. He's declaring to all of the heavenly beings, to all of the angels who are, surrounded, who are surrounding him, saying, let us make, as, as, a, as a declaration, a, a kingly word from the mouth of the king himself. And at my seminary, most of my professors opted for this latter choice. Both of them really highlight useful things. As I said, the first one, if we're talking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit deciding together to make humanity, that teaches us about the importance of relationality, relating to those around us, just as God relates as one in essence and three in persons. The second highlights the importance of dominion, that the image of God is, is about human beings exercising authority and rule and dominion just as God does. As he is making a judgment and making a declaration even in the very act of creating when he says, let us make. No matter what we say about this verse, in that sense, what is clear and what is indisputable is that human beings are the special creation of God. The Hebrew word here for make is a word that's connected to the idea of, of manufacturing something. That's of course, is not what, what God does. He does not have hands, right? But it shows us the intimate involvement of God in creating human beings. It's a, a truth that we know, we've heard many times before, but perhaps we fail to consider it rightly. Perhaps we fail to see many of the implications that it leads into for our lives. In short, for instance, the the one simple truth, right? If we are the, the creation of a supernatural being, that means we are not the product of time plus matter plus chance, And if that is true, then it leads to all kinds of of answers to questions that we would ask ourselves, uh, questions that most people ask themselves at some point in this life. Remember the four foundational questions you can think of, origin, meaning, morality, destiny. If you are committed absolutely, unequivocally, to the truth that God has created us, you will come away with vastly different answers to all of those questions. For instance, origin, where did we come from? Well, we're not the product of time plus matter plus chance. We came from God. That's a simple truth, but it's ignored, it's fought, it's suppressed, it's battled against in our world today. I found this quote, and uh, this is someone who speaks about how embarrassing it is that so many people in our country believe that we were created by God. 
It says this, the massing evidence from paleontology, genetics, zoology, molecular biology, and other fields gradually established evolution's truth beyond reasonable doubt. Today, that battle has been won everywhere except in the public imagination. Embarrassingly, in the 21st century, in the most scientifically advanced nation the world has ever known, creationists can still persuade politicians, judges, and ordinary citizens that evolution is a flawed, poorly supported fantasy. So you hear the contempt coming from this author. And that's rather tame, really, when you start to go through some of the literature that deals with this very question. The irony, of course, is that the more that we learn in scientific fields, the more that we see that this universe is finely tuned for the existence of beings just like ourselves, all of the the conditions that need to be exactly just as they are for life to flourish. Not only that, but uh, as much as we've discovered in science, really probably the the, the most uh, certain breakthrough of the last hundred years is that this universe had a definite starting point. And that definite starting point was a point at which all of the laws of physics did not apply. That's pretty much a uh, resounding agreement throughout all of uh, the world of science. So by their own admission, scientists are saying that there cannot be a purely scientific explanation for the origin of the universe. David Berlinski is an accomplished thinker. Uh, who is really a scholar that is, is well beyond uh, the credentials of many of the, the atheists today, the men like uh, Richard Dawkins and others. And he wrote a book called The Devil's Delusion, which was a response to the book by Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. And uh, he wrote this book because what he saw was that what was happening in the academic world was that people were sort of coming together and there was this snowballing energy around this idea that we need to reject the notion of the existence of God or that we are created by God. And it was just, there was really no academic or scientific reasoning behind it. And so he says this. This is an astounding, um, an astounding thing to say. I'll quote him here at length. He says, has anyone provided a proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have the sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it is not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy of thought and opinion within the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or in their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. We are created by God. And God's word reveals to us that that is true. The second question, meaning. This is the why question. Why Why are we here? Why have we been put onto this earth? What is the purpose of life and of human existence? Well, if you have a God who has brought all things out of nothing, you're going to end up with a much different answer than if you think we're the products of time plus matter plus chance. Many people out there who think that uh, because of this, because we're sort of a random product of, of nothing, 
that we all need to define our own concept of existence. We define our own meaning of life. Recently retired Justice Anthony Kennedy famously wrote this in uh, one of his defenses. He says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. What an astounding thing to say. Can you imagine if we got everyone on the face of the earth together and said, okay, all of you, write down what you think is the, the, the meaning of life, the concept of existence, the, the meaning of the universe, and, and the mystery of human life. And you try to synthesize all of that into one uh, coherent, systematic answer. You can't do it. But when you, have, when you start with a God who has created all things, who has brought all things into existence out of nothing, We ask, why did he create the universe? He created this universe for his own glory. He created this universe in order to go public with his glory because he was on a mission to glorify his name. That is the meaning of this life. And the meaning for us to join in that is to honor him and to join him on that mission of glorifying his name. Morality, the third question. Morality, who defines right and wrong? Uh, perhaps some of you remember being, uh, being a child, playing uh, games out of your, uh, creating worlds out of your imagination. And, and what do you do? Well, we understand that when we create these worlds, we need to lay some ground rules. You need to define how reality is going to go. Are people going to be able to fly in your world of imagination or not? Intuitively, we know this, that the creator of a world is the one who sets the terms, the boundaries... And the ground rules. It's important to keep that in mind when we consider that this is God's world. That he has made it. This is why we read the law week after week. Because it reminds us that God has made us and he makes the rules. We do not do it on our own. Who defines right and wrong? Well, God, God defines right and wrong. He has the right to do that. He is the creator. Destiny. What happens when we die. We ask a, a, a question like that. That's a, that's a complex question, but really what it comes down to is what are you going to believe what happens when we die? And people will believe all sorts of things. They will uh, make up answers on the fly. Well, you know, we're, our, we're, our souls are transported to another galaxy or something like that. But really, what it comes down to is will you believe the word of one who does not have the ability to transcend the reality of this life? The only one who can tell us what happens when we die is God himself, if indeed that God exists. And since we know that he does, we listen to and we heed his word when he tells us what happens when we die. God has created us. And that leaves us with a, a paradigm through which uh, or with which we answer all of these deepest questions of life origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. God has not only created us, He has created us in His own image. He has created us in His own image. No other being on this earth is made in the image and the likeness of God, not sloths or salamanders, uh, not apple trees or apes, not finches or frogs. Only human beings have been made in the image of God and are the crown of his creation. As we mentioned in verse 26, the, the two possible ways of reading that verse when God says, let us make the, the intra-Trinitarian conversation or God seated on his throne as the king uh, declaring something and ruling and exercising dominion. 
Verse 28 gives us a clue that perhaps that, that second option is probably more what we're dealing with here as we look at Genesis 1. That this is God exercising his rule and dominion as the king of kings. Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every, every living creature that moves on the ground. We see right on the heels of learning that we are made in the image of God, what God says that we ought to do is we ought to exercise authority. We ought to exercise dominion and we ought to rule. Why is that? Because we are made in the image of God and we are to reflect this God. We are to image him. If you go back to verse 26, it says we're created not only in his own image, but also in his own likeness. These two Hebrew words, Selem and Demut, these are very important words, obviously. If you know what does it mean, image and likeness, if you know exactly precisely what those mean, then you're well on your way to figuring out what does it mean to be human? What is it that God wants us to be doing? There's been somewhat of a consensus in the scholarly world over the last few decades, that really the best way to understand these words are uh, representation and resemblance. Image, representation, and likeness, resemblance. We are to represent God. In other words, we, we, he, put us, he placed us on this earth to do his work. We are to represent him, and we are to resemble him. We are to be like him. And in order to understand precisely what those mean, we need to let the meaning come forth to us out of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. What is God doing? What are the kinds of things that he is doing? So as we've said, the first way to represent and resemble God is to exercise dominion just like he does. We have been told to rule and to exercise authority. To pronounce judgments just as God does, just as a king would. The image of God highlights that human beings are to have this dominion in the sphere in which God places them. They are to be his vice kings in making things and in judging. A lot of this flows out of the the, the sense of right and wrong with which God endows us. And to which which he reveals to us right and wrong. And that forms and that shapes the kinds of judgments that we make and the ways in which we exercise this authority and this dominion. Secondly, we are to be like God in our daily work. We are to be like God in our daily work. And in, particularly in Genesis 1, what we see about God is that he is a God who works. He rises in the morning and he sets out to accomplish something. God, of course, doesn't sleep. He does not tire. He is, he's not resting at night. But that is the, the picture that we have in Genesis 1. He is a God who is working. Is working. And that is what we are called to do. Many of you are already dreading thinking about tomorrow morning, waking up before the sun comes up and getting to work. That is what we are called to do. We are called to image God, to represent him and to resemble him. In his daily work. You know, if you've ever had one of these days where it's kind of a day off that really normally wouldn't be a day off. You know, I, for instance, I went to public school, so we had off every year Kashmir Pulaski Day 
on a Monday. Or maybe you worked in one of the trades and you're outside, it's raining, so you're called off work, right? And sometimes our fleshly instincts are to say something like, um, well, I'm going to do absolutely nothing today. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to stay inside, going to veg out, not going to move, you know, get the, the bowl of potato chips next to me, veg out, not do anything. That can start out going rather well. But maybe if you're anything like me, around 2, 3 in the afternoon, and you say, what have I done today? And you think to yourself, this just doesn't feel right, you know? This is something about this does not feel right. Why? Because we have been made to work. We have been made to accomplish things. We have been made to set goals and to be working towards those goals inherent in us as image bearers of God. This does not mean that taking a break is wrong. It does not mean that vacations are wrong. There's a time for everything under the sun. But we are created to have responsibilities and to daily fulfill them. But that leads us then to realizing something else from Genesis 1. We cannot perpetually work and keep working without any breaks. Thus, we need to uh, be like God in our weekly rest. Our daily work and then our weekly rest. In Genesis, God is representing for us a pattern for life. We are to reflect him. We are not to act like we are wiser than he is. Today, most people think that they are wiser than God. And one of the ways in which they show that is that they believe that they do not need a weekly rest. Meanwhile, we are the most anxious, restless, self-obsessed, and materialistic culture, perhaps in the history of the world. These are three things that we see when it comes to the image of God. We are to, to, to represent and resemble him in terms of exercising dominion in our daily work and then also in our weekly rest. Something else, though, that uh, really informs what we believe and what we know about being the image bearers of God. In the Gospels, there's this fascinating interaction, and and many people uh, know this passage. It's a very famous passage, but perhaps not uh, because of this, uh, what we're going to talk about relative to the image of God. Someone comes up to Jesus and says, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And what's going on here? This person is asking Jesus this question because he's trying to trap him. He's trying to pit God's authority against Caesar's authority in a way that traps Jesus. If Jesus says, well, we, yes, we should pay taxes, then uh, he's acting under, like he's under the authority of a Roman emperor. But if he says don't pay taxes, then he's advocating lawlessness under the providence of God. So as the one who is claiming to be the Messiah here, uh, this person who asks Jesus this question believes he has put Jesus uh, into a trap. But Jesus' answer encapsulates something about the image of God that shows not only our own rebellion, but also the centrality of his work. Jesus says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's. Many people believe that this is just merely a thumbs up to paying taxes, right? April 15th, it's going to be painful, uh, bear with it, get over it. But there's actually something much deeper going on in this passage. Because how does Jesus get there? He's talking about the coin, and he's saying, whose image is on that coin? It's Greek word icon. Whose image is on that coin? The man answers, Caesar's. Caesar's image is on that coin. That's why Jesus says, give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And to God, that which is 
God. See, the natural follow-up question would have been, well, if our money is, if it belongs to Caesar because his image is on it, then, well, what belongs to God? And, of course, the response would have been, well, whose image is stamped on you? See, that's what Jesus is getting at in that passage, that the image of God is stamped upon us. And so we are to give ourselves, our very lives, back to the one whose image is stamped upon us. But this highlights something for us. It shows uh, how we are unable to keep that call. And it shows us how much Christ was needed to come and be, as 2 Corinthians 4 calls him, the image of God. And what happens in redemption as, as human beings begin to realize that they have failed at the call of the image of God, giving themselves unto their creator, rendering faithful service unto him perfectly and perpetually. What happens in redemption is that when we are engrafted into Christ, when we look to him in faith and we are placed inside of Christ and inside of his representation, it's like what we read in Romans chapter 8 that Paul says we have been predestined to become conformed to the image of God's Son. The fulfillment of the image of God in the sense of redemption is Jesus Christ. He fulfills the image of God for us. An image uh, that we have twisted and marred because of the fall and because of our sin. So that call of the image pulls us forward to the fulfillment found in the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, bear in mind, it's not necessarily like that before the fall. God made us perfectly righteous in knowledge and holiness in the garden. He put the, he put the end, he put fulfillment and new creation before Adam. He said, render obedience unto me and I will give you new creation life. But once we fall into sin and that image has been marred, Christ is the one who fulfills that. And he becomes for us the perfect image of God and we are conformed to the image of of Christ. Then finally, God created us male and female. We'll think about these things quickly tonight, and then uh, we will unpack these ideas next week as we think about them together. The fact that God has created us male and female, and the connection of that to uh, the image of God, that does not mean that in a fallen, in a sin-cursed world, that uh, there will be people who, uh, that do not have genetic irregularities or disorders as a result of the fall. We live in a fallen and imperfect world, and we all know that. It also doesn't mean that femininity and masculinity need to be defined in a tight, small, rigid box, that there's this tiny set of attributes that all men show forth, tiny set of attributes that all women show forth. Now, I don't think that's ever really been historically the teaching of the church, but there's a caricature out in our culture that masculinity and femininity relative to Christianity are in these small little boxes. I don't believe that that caricature is true, but still wanting to say that just so that we're clear. God gives us liberty in a lot of these things, and we must only go as far as Scripture allows. So there's a lot of questions about the meaning of male and female today, a lot of issues that are swirling around. But 
something that we see from this Genesis account is that male and female and the complementarity of male and female points us to who God is. It points us to who God is because God is a communion of three persons who are equal in essence and yet distinct in personhood. The Trinity, as we've talked about, shows us that God is a relational being, perfectly joined in covenantal uh, joy and love from all eternity. Thus, the, the creation of human beings in the image of God and male and female, God is saying something about this kind of exclusive relationship of one man and one woman and how we, as image bearers of God, are also relational beings just as God is. We are created not to be completely alone all of the time, but to be joined in fellowship with others. This does not necessarily mean that one man and one woman marriage is the only way that we experience relational fulfillment on this earth. But it does mean that it is set apart in that kind of way. In a fallen world, of course, we need to be very mindful to remember all of this because marriage joins together two sinful human beings. And whenever two sinful human beings get together, it's never going to completely satisfy us. We're going to be let down in many ways. And rather, the one man and one woman marriage is a picture or an analogy of God's perfect fellowship as the triune God. It points us then to what is the only thing that will ultimately satisfy us in this life. Because marriage is a picture of God and his people and of Christ and the church. To be joined in, in covenant fellowship and love with our God is what ultimately will satisfy us, what will give us joy and rest and peace. And that is what marriage pictures for us. But that also means that if a relationship of lifelong commitment and sexual intimacy is to properly give us this picture, it must be the joining together of one man and one woman in marriage, as God has established it, And regulates it by his word. Because what happens in one man and one woman marriage. Is that two people who are equal in value. Bring things that are complementary to one another. And that's fundamental to our creation as human beings. As we understand God as the three persons of the trinity. The father is not the son. The son is not the spirit etc. And yet they all share In this one divine essence. It also shows us how important this binary representation of humanity really is. There are two sexes, male and female. Not three genders, not seven, not 39, not 112. I didn't get those numbers randomly. That is actually what some people believe. It also means that if we observe... uh, Insects, for instance, in nature, and and we see how uh, maybe an insect might evolve from a male to a female in certain ways. Probably we don't understand all that is going on. But if we observe that in nature, that does not mean that we can assume that human beings would be undergoing the same changes. Unless the fundamental assumption is that human beings are subject to the same evolutionary processes that insects are. Time plus matter plus plus chance. 
So it's important to say and to defend all of this. Seems very simple, seems very clear, but error is always lurking at the door. Error is always lurking at the door and it's never far from us. For instance, hear this from a classes report that was accepted just last year in our very own denomination. It says this, because of various genetic and hormonal influences, biological sex is not a simple binary, but exists on a spectrum. It goes on, these variants arise naturally in human and animal populations by the ordinary operation of genetic and other biological processes. See, the, the underlying assumption is that we're subject to the same evolutionary processes that animals are. It goes on. Thus, advances in science lead us to reconsider whether various forms of same-sex attraction and intersex conditions should be seen as creational variants rather than disordered. So we see that perhaps we need to take a stand on these issues as that which is unbiblical and false creeps closer to our door and our associations. So when we lose this foundation of male and female, We learn what it is that we are to learn through our gender, through being male and female, which is fundamental to our humanity, being joined to an other, one who is equal to us and yet different. And when we lose that, we lose the picture of ultimate meaning, why it is that God has placed us on this earth, that we were made to be joined in covenant with God. In short, we lose how these point us to the eternity for which we were created, even from creation before the fall. We see that, that God has created us for eternity. And that was lost, but that is why Christ came in order to fulfill all of this about the image of God that was marred by the fall. So Christ comes to redeem us to bring us home to himself. And the New Testament says that we become like a bride prepared for our groom, Jesus Christ. This shows us the final piece of the puzzle that uh, creation, creation in the image of God, and creation as male and female show to us that we were made for God and his glory. We were made to give ourselves back to him because his image is stamped upon us He created us as male and female to picture both the need that we have for uh, to be joined in relationship to another, and then finally it shows us the exclusive relationship between Christ and the church. From this bedrock of truth, we go to see how we might apply these truths more specifically to the situation in our day. Lord willing, we'll do that next week. Let's pray. Father, We're thankful for the faith we have inherited, passed down through generations. And Father, we are so humbled to be called your people. And we thank you and we praise you for another day to worship you, a day of rest. Father, we ask that you might sanctify us in your truth and press these truths deeply upon our hearts. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.